This is a recording of Dr. Ahmed Hussein, Professor Emeritus for the University of Northern British Columbia, speaking about a dual-fuel nuclear reactor at the Sunday, February 14, 2016 meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the BCHA or its board of directors. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist podcast on Stitcher and iTunes. Thank you for the invitation and uh, glad to see all of you here today. So the the goal really is to try to convince you that nuclear power is important and the way for the future. For the progress of human race, we need nuclear power. Uh, Right now, we are at a stage similar to the, the stage after the, the start of the uh, Industrial Revolution, we'll call what the, the main source of power, and the development needed much better source of power than, than coal. And once, once oil became the main source of power, that has higher density of energy than, than coal, then everything uh, picked up. We have trains that can travel long distances. We have airplanes, cars, and everything else. But now we reach a sort of saturation with with oil and fossil fuels. So in addition of the problems fossil fuels are causing with the environment, apart from climate change, whether you agree with it or not, that's another issue. But (coughs) the pollution fossil fuels are causing is a serious problem. And it has to be stopped because of that. In addition to the fact that we cannot actually support the new phase of developments of uh, human race. So I'm trying to convince you that we have a solution for the problems of nuclear power that existing nowadays. It has lots of problems. Uh, it's not completely clean. It's much better than fossil fuels, but it has its own problems. So I'm going to show you the problems that current reactors has and why we should not really continue using them. <coughs> And the alternative will be much, much better alternative than the current nuclear power. So the what I'm going to talk about is show you the people involved in that project. And also, I'm having an introduction that talks to people who are not familiar with the, uh, the terminology of uh, energy and power. And my apology for those who are actually familiar with it, bear with me for a few minutes. But it will be important for the people who are not familiar with it to actually know so that you can follow what I'm going to say later on. Next, we uh, are going to give you an idea about the energy sources in Canada, all of it. And then the next one is to talk about the worldwide use of nuclear power, the current use of nuclear power, and then explain why we really need nuclear power. After that, I'm explaining to you, I'll explain to you how nuclear reactors work in very simple terms. And uh, com- com- the components of a nuclear reactor, the current ones, and then move to the new concept we are proposing. Okay, the people involved are actually a group of uh, physicists and engineers. Most of them, all of them actually in Germany, except me here in Canada. 
some of them, Armin Hope, for example, and Götze uh, Rubrecht, these two people, were working with me here at Triumph in uh, some astrophysics uh, research. And then they finished their tenure here and went back to Germany. <coughs> During their stay here, we came up with this idea, and we have been developing it together since then. So now the, there's a little bit about what is energy and what is power. So energy is measured in joules. This is a unit to measure amount of energy. Measured in joules or calories. Probably most of you are familiar with the calories. The, however, the calorie in, on, in the food is actually a kilo of these calories, 1,000 of these. So one calorie equals four, four joules, a little over four joules. And then to give you an idea of what is energy and, uh, and uh, what the joule is, it takes about 300 kilojoules to boil one kilogram of water. So if you have one kilogram of water, you want to boil it from room temperature to 100 degrees, you need to get the 300 kilojoules of energy. Okay? Now, you cannot, of course, get that energy immediately. You don't put the pot on the stove and water will boil. It will take some time for the water to boil. So if we assume that water will take will boil in 10 minutes, you put the pot on the, on the stove and it will boil after 10 minutes, then in this case, the energy delivered at the rate of 500 joules per second, or that's a new unit of power, we call it 500 watts. So the rate of giving energy or taking away energy, period of time is called what? Pot. Okay. So the watt is a unit of power, or the rate of delivering energy, and electric power stations, say a power station that produces 1,000 megawatt, 1,000 million watts, it means that it produces or delivers 1,000 million joules every second. Every second, okay? or in scientific notation, it's 10 to the power nine joules per second, or we can call that also one, one gigajoule per second. The joule is a very small amount of energy, really very small. So that power companies or electric companies use a bigger unit. That's the unit which you'll probably see in your electricity bill. It's called kilowatt hour, which is 3.6 megajoules, 3.6 million joules. Okay, so the electric company actually charges you per kilowatt hour. I'm not sure about the rate, 20 cent, 26 cents or something like that. So the total energy delivered by a 1,000 megawatt, 1,000 megawatt reactor or power station is enough to supply energy to about a medium-sized city. Not like Vancouver. Vancouver would require several. 1,000 megawatt power stations. So 1,000 megawatt is a medium size, uh, medium size city. On the average, now we are going to talk about <laughs> consumption of electricity in Canada. On the average, Canadian households consume 40 gigajoules 
gigajoules is 1,000 million joules. Over electricity in 2011. This represents about 40% of the total energy needed by the household. 40% electricity and 60% of something else, heating and other stuff. So the total household consumption of electricity in Canada in 2011 is 500,000 uh, terajoules. Tera is 1,000 1, 1 million, 1, 000, 1 million million joules. It's a huge amount of energy. Now we can skip that one here. This is a very important one now. On the average, a Canadian household family of four or five people will require 1.3 kilowatt of power to be able to have their needs of electricity. Okay? Now, this is 1.3 kilowatt. This is a very important point. 1.3 kilowatt or 1,000, 1.3 thousand joules every second. Every second of the day, every second of the week, every second of the year. Not during the day only, not whenever the power company likes, this has to be supplied to you continuously. Whenever you put the switch on, lights goes on at four o'clock in the morning or at four o'clock in the afternoon. This is continuous power, it has to be available continuously. This is a very important point because when you talk about <coughs> the renewable energies later on. Now, Energy resources in Canada, we start with coal. Canada has 1% of world deposits of 8.7 billion tons, and a lot more is expected. This is the 8.6 billion is the proven one. There are lots of unproven resources, resources in Canada. It's actually a lot more than 8.7. It could reach 90, million, 90 billion tons in addition to this one. So Canada has lots of coal. The uh, Canada produces 76 million tons per year. Okay. 15 coal-fired power stations across Canada. Oil. Third largest world deposits after Saudi Arabia and Venezuela. Canada is number three. Canada has 172 billion barrels of oil. Mostly, unfortunately, is stored in oil sands in Alberta, which requires quite a bit of work to actually get the oil out of the sands. It's the fifth largest world producer, 3.6 million barrels every day. Natural gas, 1,000 terakubic feet of deposits, that's quite a bit of natural gas. Fifth largest producer in the, in the world, uranium. The third largest world deposits. It has, Canada has 8% of the world uranium, the non world uranium. This is actually the strange thing about uranium that the amount of uranium that you can use depends on the price of the uranium. Because at a certain price, it's the same like the oil sands. The oil sands require $30 to produce a barrel of oil. So if the price of oil is more than 30, then you have, you can produce more, and you have more. 
if the price goes down, then you produce less because it's not it's not economic. So the uranium the same thing. The this eight percent is at a price of roughly about hundred and fifty dollars per kilogram. If the price goes up, then the amount of uranium available would be would be actually more. But right now the current price is hundred and fifty dollars per, uh, per kilogram. It represents eighty percent of the world deposits. The amount is actually 485,000 tons at 100 kilograms. Uh, $100 per kilogram. Sorry, I said 130, this 100 kilograms. $100 per kilogram. So that's electricity use in Canada by resource. So we have seen all of these resources. So hydro, Canada produces, produces uh, the hydro produces 61% of the electricity in Canada. Coal is 11.85 percent. That's quite a bit, given how dirty coal is. Natural gas 9.3 percent. Nuclear is 14.6, and the rest can take the rest of it. So the major ones are hydro, coal, and nuclear. Nuclear power in Canada is concentrated basically in the east, between it's split between Quebec and. Uh, Go back and one of the maritimes, I don't remember which one. Yeah. So here is the change of electricity use uh, since 1990 to till 2011. So you can see the changes. Natural gas changed by 500%, over 500%. The uh, diesel fuel and all of this group here just increased by 5.8%. Heavy oil, heavy fuel oil, went down by 65%, which is a good thing. Because this is also very dirty stuff. Coal went down by 7.1%, but still high, very high, because at 11%, it's quite high. The hydro increased by 26.6%. Nuclear increased by 28.4%. Wood and other stuff went up by 43%. And the petroleum and all of this group of resources went up by 600, over 600. Now, we talk about the worldwide use of nuclear power. As of June 2013, 31 countries worldwide are operating 440 nuclear reactors for electricity generation. All of these 440 reactors are running safely, no problems with it with them except what happened in Fukushima. This is the only accident that happens in this 440 reactors. What about Chernobyl? So that's past history. Chernobyl was an old one that was back in the in the sixties. Chernobyl was the worst worst nuclear reaction, nuclear incident ever. However, the there will never be another Chernobyl. Because the design of that reactor was really bad. It was a very, very bad design to start with. And by the way, it was not really an, uh, a nuclear problem that caused that incident. It was a graphite fire. That reactor was moderated by graphite, and the graphite caused fire. And the graphite fire is a very special kind of fire. You cannot, you cannot distinguish it by water. They need special techniques to put it down. And apparently, the crew that went in at the beginning didn't have any experience in uh, putting graphite fire. 
So the graphite fire that actually caused the problem, not uh, the nuclear thing. But because there was no containment of the reactor, the radiation and the radioactive material spread all over the place. And the number of people died from Chernobyl actually is exaggerated quite a bit. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Worldwide, the nuclear power produces 17.1% of the world electricity in 2012. 15 countries actually produce <coughs> at least 25% of their electricity using nuclear power. So it's not really a, a very rare use of nuclear power. It's quite, quite straight. France, in particular, is, produces 70% of their electricity using nuclear power. This is the largest percentage in the whole world. Now, why we say nuclear power is, is good and important? So let us see now <coughs> what is a good energy source. There are certain criteria for that. The first one is high energy density. We'll talk about this high energy density later on. But you need a source that has a small amount of it, contains quite a bit of energy. This is what energy density means. The second criteria is that this source, no source you can use it directly without spending some sort of energy. You cannot just take a source and use it right away. You will have to prepare for use. So preparing it for use, you spend the energy. So you spend the energy in getting that resource to work, and then you get back energy. So you need that source to give you more energy than you put in. Otherwise, it will not be very good. So a source will require high return on energy, return on energy invested, we call it hero. We'll talk about these issues later on in details. That source, that good source, should be able to be able to provide base load energy demand. Load base load energy demand means minimum demand continuously, like the 1.3 kilowatt the household demands. It needs to be supplied continuously every second of the day and the, and the week and the year and so on. Next is the source should provide minimum pollution and emission of greenhouse gases through the life cycle of the resource, not only during operation. Because the resource you need to extract it from the ground or from somewhere, prepare it, build a power station that uses it, and then use it, and then dismantle the power station after its half-life. Through this whole cycle, one would like to have minimum pollution and minimum greenhouse emission, not only during the operation, but from the beginning to the end. Also, we have the resource to be available for quite a bit of time. You don't want to use a resource that can last for a year. You need a resource that can last for a long time. Finally, it should be safe to produce and, uh, and use. So now let us see those characteristics one by one for all energy resources available to us. The uh, list here started from wood, coal, three kinds of coal, natural gas, crude oil, and then uranium in, and then a nuclear reactor. Wood, if you burn one kilogram of wood, then you can boil 53 kilograms of water. 
using that piece of wood. I'm using here, I'm ignoring efficiency losses and all of that. If you can use the whole energy produced by one kilogram of wood to boil water, then you can boil 53 kilograms. Brown coal, it's called megamite, has actually only 10 megajoules per kilogram, which means that this amount of energy can boil only 33 kilograms of water. Black coal, black coal, between 13 and 23, depends on uh, the quality of it. 20 megajoules per can boil 70, 77 kilograms based on the 23, the highest number. Black coal, which is the hard one, is quite larger. It has between 24 and 30 megajoules per kilogram, which means that at 30 megajoules per kilogram, you can boil 100 kilograms of water. Natural gas has 38 megajoules per cubic meter, can boil 127 kilograms of water. Crude oil, 45 to 46, 153 kilograms of water. Uranium, 500,000 megajoules per kilogram of uranium. This is the current reactors can do that. The reactors we are building nowadays can do this. This means that one kilogram of uranium converted and produced power will boil 1.6 million kilograms of water. So this is the density, the energy density of these various sources. So based on that we need the good or high energy density, nuclear power is the best choice. Now, how about the renewables, wind and solar? <clears throat> wind energy, if you have a turbine that is rotating at a speed of 40, 45 kilometers per hour, then that turbine will produce one kilowatt, which is what is required by one household. But in this case, the turbine area has to be about a meter square, square meter. Okay? But if the speed drops from 45 kilometers to say 14 kilometers per hour, then to produce one kilowatt, you need a turbine that is 32 square meters. So you can see the problem here, that if you don't have very high speed of wind, the amount of power coming from that windmills is really insignificant. Because you are not going to build uh, a turbine that has 32 square meters of okay. That's going to be huge. This is solar PV, this is the uh, solar panels. PV stands for photovoltaic. Now, if you have a solar panel that is perpendicular to the sun's rays at noon, with sun directly overhead, then one square meter of this kind of solar panel, panel under these conditions will produce one kilowatt. So if you need to have your house to be powered by a solar panel, you need a panel that is about one and a half square meters in area. That's if the sun coming at your house perpendicular to the rays at noon and the sun is overhead. In Canada here, where the sun doesn't really come overhead, then the power would be much less. You need a lot more than one and a half square meters of air. In general, you get the 
surface area should be between two and a half and five square meters. That depends on, on the location, where it is. Okay. Problem also here is that the solar energy is coming only during the day, during a sunny day. So the solution for the wind and the solar is the following. If in your area that you need, you can produce one, one kilowatt uh, by covering the roof of your house, that's not enough because that will be during the day, during the night, it will more interest. So what you do is that you double that area and you get two kilowatts. You store one kilowatt in a battery or something and use the one kilowatt. So at night you have the extra energy. However, once you have batteries, then you are running into problems because the batteries are polluting, cost more, etc. We will talk about that also later on. So the as far as the energy density, still nuclear is the best option. Next is the energy return on energy invested. This is solar panels. You need to spend for every unit of energy you spend to produce solar panel, you get back about four units. For every unit spend, you get four. I'm going to talk about the yellow ones later on, so let's concentrate now on the blue ones. Biomass, uh, you spend one, you get also four. Wind, you spend one, you get 16. Solar concentrated, the solar concentrated is not using solar panels. It uses mirrors. They reflect the energy on a tank that has water, and all that reflected energy will actually boil the water and you get uh, heat from that. So this one here is better than the solar panels, and for every unit of energy you spend, you get 19. The natural gas, you spend one, you get 28. Uh, coal, you spend one, you get 30. Because coal is cheaper to get than natural gas. Hydro, you get one, you spend one, you get 49. In nuclear, current nuclear reactors, you spend one, you get 75. This is the blue ones. The yellow lines are the ones which the source is not enough by itself. It needs to be stored. So that you direct the solar energy when you have to store it to get it at night. So if you add the storage, the storage will require more energy to produce. Then solar panels will drop from spend the one you get 1.4. So the, the 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 source that requires storage is solar panels. Biomass, of course, doesn't because you can burn the solar mass all the time. When do you need? So once you get uh, storage for uh, for wind. You, you spend one, you get one, you get two. The uh, solar concentrated power drops from one uh, to ten, in one into nineteen, into one and nine. Uh, natural gas, coal, uh, and nuclear are continuously don't need storage for that. The hydro, however, needs some of them need storage because not all the rivers will actually give you the same amount of water continuously. So it goes up and down depends on on the on the season. So that's why the, the drop in and in hydro is not as big as this area. It's drop, but it's not as bad. 
So that is the energy returned and energy invested. You can see that nuclear is still better. I'll show you later that the, our reactor is actually going to produce, you spend one, you get 2,000 units of energy. Now the uh, gas emission, green, greenhouse gas emissions. The, uh, all of these sources here, this is the mean amount, the average amount of gas emission <coughs> produced. This is a low amount and this is a high amount. The Degenite is the worst, produces 1,000. This is a unit here is gram of carbon dioxide equivalent. So which means that carbon dioxide and other things is similar to carbon dioxide. So you get 1,000 grams of carbon dioxide equivalent per kilowatt hour produced by the other core, 888, the numbers goes down, oil 733, natural gas 500, solar panels 85, biomass 45, nuclear is 29, uh, hydroelectric is 26, and wind 26. So the cleanest ones here is nuclear, hydro, and wind. So considering the problems with the, uh, with the wind, then one can exclude that, although it is better. Hydroelectric, of course, has a big problem that it is not available everywhere. Whenever it's available, it's good. I mean, this is the best source you can have. The final thing is a number called, or a property called death print. People die because of the energy source we use. Okay? The death comes from variety of things. For example, uh, problems, health problems arise during uh, mining, <coughs> accidents, during mining and during construction, access during operation, this kind of thing. The pollution in the air, people actually end up dying because of the pollution in the air. The climate change might also cause some, some death too. So there is an estimate of how many people die per terakilowatt hour. This is a very large number, so this number is not really uh, as bad as it looks, but still, relatively speaking, they are the same. So, coal, global average of coal all over the world, 170,000 people. And the coal represents 50% of the global electricity. The coal in China is 280,000, and China uses 75% of electricity, produces 75% of electricity using coal. United States is 15,000 and uses 44% of its electricity from coal. Now the reason this drop here, between here, here, and here, is that United States has strict rules on using coal. So these rules actually clean the coal a little bit. And as a result, the number of people dying from using the coal use in the United States is much less than in China and the world war. Oil, 36,000. Natural gas is 4,000. Biomass or biofuel, 24,000, with 21% of the global electricity. Uh, solar is 440. Wind, 150. Uh, hydro, is actually large because accidents during construction of uh, dams uh, happen and large number of people die. 
And other problem is that if the dam uh, elapses, you can get large number of people. But, so that's why the number is is quite large. But the problem is that with this one here, this is if you average it over the life of the dam, which can be 100 years, then the number will become much less. During operation, very few people will die uh, because of the dams. Nuclear, the global average of nuclear is 90 people per the same amount of power. And nuclear represents 17% of the global electricity, and that includes Chernobyl and Fukushima. Fukushima has zero deaths. I'm just putting it in there to make sure that you know that Fukushima is included in this number. Uh, the other major accident that happened in Masjid, the Three Miles Island, nobody dies from uh, Three Miles Island. Okay, now the life expectancy. How long a resource will last? Natural gas, the world reserves of natural gas is this large amount of cubic meters. And the consumption is this. You divide this by this, in 2000, so this, these numbers are 2011, you find out that the total amount of, of years that natural gas will be available at the consumption rate of 2011 is 56 years. So within 56 years, if no new resources of natural gas is going to discover, 56 years the natural gas is gone. Same thing with oil. The world has 1.47 10 to the 12 billion barrels, they consume, we consume 2.87 10 to the power 10 billion barrels, and the life time would be 51 years. So again, based on the current resources, or the 2011 resources of oil, and the consumption, oil will last 51 years. Coal, a lot longer, 129 years. But I think if we rely on coal, will probably all die before coal lasts. Uranium. This is a bit complex table here. Current reactors use only 0.7% of the uranium, less than 1% of the uranium. You put one ton of uranium in the reactor, it burns only 70 kilograms. Okay? So this is really a very inefficient use of uranium. However, at 0.7% of the uranium, and the world is using, is producing 17% of the electricity using uranium, then current uranium will last for 65,000 years. If we use 100% of the uranium, not 0.7%, Accident, not 0.7 percent, then the number will drop. Sorry, the, no, this is the consumption. Sorry, the consumption. This is the consumption. We are consuming 65,000 tons at 0.7 percent of the uranium. At 100 percent of the uranium, we, are con we will be consuming four and a half kilograms. Of tons, sorry, tons. Now, the lifetime of the 0.7 is 82 years. 
if we use 100% because we are consuming less now, this would last about 11,000 years. If the world turns completely into 100% nuclear, then the consumption at 0.7% will be this number here. At 100% will be smaller, of course, the factor of 100. And then the uranium will last only, the 0.7% last only for 15.9 years. And uh, at 100%, it will last 2,000 years. All of these numbers are based on, in 2011, based on $130 per kilogram. So you can see now that nuclear reactors are actually much better in all categories than any other source. All categories, without exception. So nuclear, uh, the advantage also that nuclear actually emit no greenhouse gases or radioactivity into the atmosphere during operation. None. Zero. The uh, 1,000 megawatt reactor, current one, produces solid waste. It's a solid waste, one cubic meter per year. One cubic meter. The uh, nuclear waste from current reactor is highly radioactive. It's very, very highly radioactive. And lives for a very long time. You need to store it for thousands of years. This is the main problem with current reactors. It also accumulates quite a bit of weapons-grade material, like plutonium and other stuff that can be used for building nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons. Fossil fuels, however, emits tons of carbon dioxide gas or greenhouse gases during operation every year. Tons. Goes up. And it's not contained, it's spread all over the world. The solid waste from the reactors is one cubic meter solid. You put it somewhere, it stays there. It doesn't go anywhere. But the uh, carbon dioxide and the greenhouse gases is spread all over the atmosphere, all over the world. It doesn't matter where you produce it. Coal actually emits, in addition of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, it also puts in the atmosphere radioactive materials. Because natural radioactive materials like radium and rhodium, and radon does exist underground with the coal. You take it out, you burn the coal, these gases will go out into the atmosphere. So the coal produces more radioactivity in the atmosphere than nuclear power. Now, what is how a nuclear reactor works? So a nuclear reactor works on so-called fission, uranium or heavy elements fission splitting of the uh, and the nucleus of a certain energy. There are two kinds of fission, spontaneous fission and neutron-induced fission. For those of you who are not familiar again with the structure of matter, every matter is composed of atoms or molecules. The atom has two parts, the nucleus inside, very small, very tiny, and the electrons outside. Electrons determine the chemical properties of the, of the atom. The nucleus inside determines its nuclear properties. The nucleus is simply composed of two particles. Protons, which are positively charged, and neutrons that have no charge. Okay? So, let us see what, what happens with that. If you, take a, a, if you look at a uranium nucleus, a uranium nucleus has 92 protons, and 235 neutrons and the protons. Okay, so this is looks like a uh, uranium nucleus. 
if you look at it for a long time, then you will find that this nucleus is going to split into two pieces by itself. That's what we call spontaneous fission. So it splits like that. The reason for splitting is that it has too many neutrons. The system is very big. This nucleus is not stable and try to stabilize itself. One of the ways of stabilizing itself is certain number of neutrons and protons collect together, and the other collect together, and they leave. Once they leave, the smaller ones will be more stable than the big one. So one example is strontium-90 and xenon-140. They come out moving this way. This is just one example. If you watch another nucleus, it might give you different kind of, of atoms than this one. That's not only the only thing that happens. It can also produce one neutron in addition to these two, or two neutrons, or three neutrons. The average is two and a half. So the average every fission produces two and a half neutrons. This is very important. But not only that, in this process here, when the, the this nuclear splits into two and produces three neutrons, you get energy. The energy is contained on those products. They move fast. And that's energy. They have energy. Now, this energy is in nuclear units is 200 million electron volt. It is a very small amount of energy. 200 million electron volt is 3.2 10 to minus 11 joules. If you can burn uh, uranium or a uranium atom uh, splits in your finger, for example, in your finger and splits, the energy it produces will not even feel it because the amount of energy is extremely small. However, if you talk about one kilogram of uranium, that one kilogram of uranium has huge number of atoms. If all of them split, then you can get this huge amount of energy. So even though every nucleus will give you a tiny amount of energy, but if you have, because you have huge number of atoms in one kilogram, you get large amount of energy. This is a spontaneous fission. There is another kind of fission is that you take a nucleus like this and bombard it with a neutron. Shoot a neutron at it. The neutron go inside, disturbs the nucleus, and there will be disturbance. The nucleus will look like something like this because of the disturbance. And eventually it's going to split. Once it splits, the same like the previous one. You have two pieces and one or two or three neutrons go and they have the same process. The first one it happens by itself, but it's very, very rare. This one here, you can control it because you put a neutron in, you get the fish. No neutron, no fish. The same amount of energy will be produced. Okay, this is the process that's being used in a nuclear reactor. Now, how the reactor works? The reactor works on the so-called fission chain reaction. You get one neutron, hits one uranium nucleus, and then it will fission. You get two fragments, two atoms, and maybe three nucleus. Sometimes three, sometimes two, sometimes one. Depends. So in this case here, I put three. If two of these three is going to produce to fission 
with two other new, uh, new uranium atoms, then you'll end up now with probably here two. And here is three, this one and this one and this one. Now, if these two proceed to produce new fission and these two, then we're going to have the following situation. Now, I'm starting with one neutron here, get two here, four here, eight here. Then one more process, you get 16. So one, two, four, eight, 16. If we continue, the next step will be 32 and 64. 128 and so on. This process goes in extremely fast. So if you have one kilogram of uranium, shoot one neutron at it, you can end up fissioning all the atoms inside that one kilogram in a matter of a fraction of a second. Okay, That's when you get a nuclear bomb. That's what they do with the nuclear bomb. They let this process go to consume the whole amount. They put about five kilograms in a nuclear bomb, so you can imagine five kilograms, all efficient in a fraction of a second, a huge amount of energy come out in a short period of time, that's where the destructive power comes from. However, if you control this process and make it go slow, then the energy can be useful in this case. So this is what happens in nuclear reactors. You use the same process, but Control. How do you control? Here is a, a simple picture of a nuclear reactor. A vessel, say a cylinder, and the cylinder will have water in it, and three, two kinds of rods: the blue rods and this orange rods. When they are in the water, they look different. Now the blue rods are uranium rods. Okay. The orange rods, they call them control rods. These control rods, they are made of a material that absorbs huge number of neutrons. You put them in, they eat the neutrons. Lunch. So what happens is that they push all of these rods all the way up outside of the reactor core. And let the reaction go. Once you reach the amount of power you want, then you start dropping the rods again, such that not two neutrons will cause the fission, only one neutron will cause the fission from that point on. So the power will be coming out of state. That's how a nuclear reactor works. If you want to stop the reactors, then you drop all of these control rods all the way down. They absorb all the neutrons and the fission will stop. Okay? Why do you have water in here? The reason for the water here is that the neutrons produced by the fission are moving very fast. And this is not good for the fission. So they need to slow them down. So they use water to slow them down before they can go to <coughs> reduce the fission. So the, the water here is called the moderator. So if you look from the top, you see the, the fuel rods, the blue ones, the control rods, the orange ones, and the water is the moderator. A real reactor might look something like this. Here you have the reactor core itself. Here is the uranium rods. These are the control rods. And it's contained in a container. And this is the water here. The fission will take place. 
the water will become hot. Very hot. Then you need to cool it. So the, that tank, that core of the reactor here is sitting in a tank of water again. So the heat will come out from this water here to this water here. That water will, uh, will boil and then come out in here, get cooled, and then put back again in here to keep cooling the reactor. So the energy produced here is transferred into, into this tank here. Now, this tank here, the water here will actually boil, become steam. You let the steam come out into turbine to produce electricity. So the steam will be, say, something like 200, 300 degrees. It goes in to produce electricity and cool down to, say, 100 degrees. It's still very hot. So you put it in here, you get the water from a lake or a river or an ocean to cool it down. And the water will go back to the, the, the source, the, the river or the lake out from here. And the cold water will go back in here to be boiled again and produce electricity and so on. Now there are problems here. First problem is that water boils at 100 degrees. At 100 degrees, the heat transfer from here to here will be very inefficient. Very, very inefficient. So only small fraction of the heat in here will be transferred to here. So to make the transfer of heat better, then you prevent the water from boiling at 100 degrees. What you do, you increase the pressure. So if you raise the pressure up, then water will boil at, say, 300 degrees. So what they do is that they keep the water here <coughs> under very, very high pressure, right? something like between 150 and 170 atmospheric pressure. This is extremely high pressure. Now, under this high pressure, if this tank here is not strong, it will explode. So you have to make a very, very strong, something like maybe six inches of steel to be able to sustain this 170 atmospheric pressures. This tank also has to be the same thing because again here, you don't want the water to boil here. Here it's okay because the water here needs to be boiled and the heat will go into this. So the cost of building this and this is extremely high. This one, the cost of building this reactor is very high because of that. In addition, you have this container here that if something goes wrong in here, all of this radioactivity and all of this stuff will be staying inside. That's another container outside that probably made of concrete, half a meter of concrete or something like that. So that if something goes wrong in the reactor, everything will stay inside, nothing goes outside. So this is the first problem, that the cost. Second is that this, this material here will have this, this fission fragments. Those are highly radioactive. They are staying in there. They don't go anywhere. So at the end of the life of these rods, they are extremely radioactive. And you have to take them out stop the reactor, take them out, and put fresh ones in it. And the fresh ones will work for a year or two, become very high radioactive, take them out, and put new ones, and so on. This is a serious problem. The other problem here is that this fission here happens with the uranium-235, which is only 0.7% of the total amount of uranium. 
And because this reactor here has to reduce the energy of the neutrons, we call it the thermal reactors. Okay? So adding that moderator here to reduce the energy of the neutrons is another complication of this design. This kind of design is called the pressurized water reactor. What you can do is a pressurized water reactor. Okay? You need to have a high pressure for the water. The other problems here is that the number of neutrons produced per fission is two and a half only. Not, uh, there are other designs like our design will actually produce uh, a lot more than that. We will produce about six or seven neutrons per fission. So, this two and a half neutrons per fission is not enough to actually sustain the fission reaction, the chain reaction, so that uranium has to be enriched, which means that you basically go through a process where you basically increase the amount of 235 in a normal kilogram of uranium to something like 3 to 5%. You basically take 238 out until the 235. This process is a very complicated process, and it's very, very expensive. So the fuel has to be enriched to between 3 and 5 percent until uh, to be used in nuclear reactor. Can do, however, use natural uranium the way it is, but they compensate for the lack of neutrons using heavy water. Uh, that's a trick they are using to use. Uh, but heavy water has its own problems too. The extensive, extensive and expensive infrastructure for the enrichment and produced these heavy elements. And these heavy elements have very long half-life. And some of them, like plutonium, can be used in nuclear weapons. High pressure requires special materials. Uh, low operating temperature, even at 300 degrees, still the heat transfer is not very efficient. The, uh, yeah, will uh, diffuse solid fuel, control rods, the most serious problem in any nuclear reactor of any design, including ours, is that if the cooling medium stops accreting, then the reactor is producing heat and nothing is to take the heat out. This is the most serious problem. And it was the main problem in Three Miles Island. Three Miles Island was actually happened, it was almost a meltdown because the cooling water was cut off. And the operators did not realize that the cooling water was cut off for a very, very long time. So the actor actually melted down, partially melted down. So this is one of the serious problems, and later on I'll show you how we handled this. There are three, four generations of nuclear reactors. The first ones that came right after the Manhattan Project were very crude and had lots of problems. Then things improved a little bit in the second generation, and then there is third generation that basically is still the same idea, but improved safety. And the three, uh, three plus that is the currently used reactors is definitely much better than the other. Now we have generation four reactors. Our reactor is one of those, generation four. All of these are still concepts. No one yet built any of the reactor proposed in generation four. 
Okay, now we'll talk about the dual phenyl reactor. The dual phenyl reactor, actually, the technology in it is not new. We haven't come up with any new technology that was not known before. We are using technology that actually have been proven into this kind of reactor. This one here is called the molten salt reactor experiment. This is a lead-cooled uh, lead fast reactor, and this is a very high temperature reactor. We have taken elements from this, this, and this, put it together to produce a much better reactor than the existing ones. So the reactor, our reactor, the dual fuel reactor, is really uh, made of proven technologies. The only trick in it is that we need to show that putting these technologies together work. The molten salt reactor experiment, that was a reactor, experimental reactor built in the United States in Oak Ridge National Labs back in the 60s. And it was the very first reactor to use liquid fuel. All the designs came from Manhattan Project were using solid fuel. And that was a military requirement. <clears throat> the military required that all reactors have solid fuel because they accumulate plutonium in them, so they can take the, uh, the rods, extract the plutonium, and use it in building the, the bombs. So the, the, this military, military requirement actually spread into the civilian reactors as well. So the, that reactor back in the 60s was the very first reactor to use liquid fuel. However, it has liquid fuel and also used to cool the reactor. So combining both of them together. So as a fuel and a coolant. As a result, the, that fuel is, became very, the, uh, anyway, this molten salt reactor experiment ran for four years and then they shut it down. Again, I think that apparently the military was not very happy with that. That, that actually proved that liquid fuel can be used successfully and it has lots of passive safety features as I explained later on. Here is the concept of the dual period reactor. This is not how it's gonna look like. This is, you can see the artist concept of the reactor. This unit here is the unit that prepares the, the fuel. You bring in uranium, natural uranium, combine it with chlorine, and heat it up to melt it down. And then pump it down to the reactor core. The reactor core is composed of tubes connected together where the fluid will circulate. So the fission will happen in here. While the whole thing is immersed in liquid lead. Liquid lead is circulating around, taking the heat out from here and giving it to the outside. So the heat outside can be used to produce electricity or do whatever you want to do. It's heat. Okay. Now, while the fluid is circulating, there will be radioactive material produced. This unit here also is going to extract these radioactive materials and store it in here. So it would be also the, the, this radioactive material produce radioactivity, produce power or energy all the time. You can shut down the reactor but you cannot shut down this. This is the main problem in the current reactors. You shut down the reactor, but the rods contain those fission fragments that are very highly radioactive. Very highly radioactive means 
continuous production of, of energy. So you shut down the current reactor, completely shut down, but you still have to provide cooling or else the reactor will melt because of the efficient process. Here, we are solving this problem by extracting those radioactive material produced here after the fission and store them here, separately from the reactor itself. The most serious problem will happen if the lead does not circulate in a moment for whatever reason. The pump, this is the pump that actually circulating the lead, this pump stopped. And the other pump that is on the standby also doesn't work. Or the electricity was cut off. So everything is that, no, you don't have electricity, you don't have power. You cannot control anything. So what happened in this case? What happened in this case is that we have here this so-called fuse plug. That fuse plug is a material that is cool and becomes solid. Okay, so when it's cooled and solid, the circulation will continue this way. The same thing here. If cooling stops, the tension in the reactor will go up. When the tension goes up, that plug will melt and for that, and open this here. So the circulation will not going to be continued this way. The fuel will be drained down here. I'll show you later what happens when it's draining. This one is the same thing. This one has to be also cooled too. So if the tension is up, if the circulation is down or not circulating, this one here, this plug here also will melt down and these radioactive materials are going to drain down. There's no problem. So in this case, if cooling is stopped, you don't need the stupid operators to come in and figure out what's going on, the reactor by itself is going to stop them. Shut them, completely. This is really the greatest thing about this reactor. Lead melts at about 300 degrees and boils at about 1700 degrees. So you can use lead as a liquid in that range from 300 to 1600. So what we are going to do is we can let the lead run at 1,000 degrees. So at 1,000 degrees, the heat transfer from the lead to the outside is very, very efficient, much more efficient than the current reactors. So you can get a lot of heat from the same amount of water. Lead also doesn't require, you don't need to pressurize. So this reactor is going to run at atmospheric pressure. You don't need these strong tanks to protect it. It's atmospheric pressure, and lead is circulating. And if something goes wrong, everything will. There are other safety things. Like, for example, if the temperature goes up, the density of the fuel here will become less. This means also the fission chain cannot continue. And the lead also, when it's hot, it also helps actually shutting down the reactor. So there's not only this safety, safety plugs here, but also the properties, the mechanical properties or the heat properties of the fluid, the fuel, and the lead will, will actually help the reactor to shut down. So here is what happens, another <coughs> simplified, simplified version of the design. So when the fuel drains down, when this fuse blood melts, we store it into tanks 
that is called subcritical. Subcritical means that the chain reaction cannot continue. So you put it in several tanks so that there will be no fission here. The fission will continue for a few, few seconds and then stops. So there will be no heat generated here. <laughs> the, uh, the same thing will happen with the with the radioactive waste. The radioactive waste also will be drained, but it will continue to produce heat. Then we'll provide cooling for it. And the design that we have now is to let that cooling happen not by circulating water or anything, but by normal uh, radiation. We can build it underground because we don't need any water. So the, this is the reactor here underground. And above ground is the turbine that produces it. This design here, building it underground, will enhance its safety and security as well. So if it works, will not affect it. Uh, military attack will not affect it. So it is much safer this way. Because we don't use water for the reactor. Water only will be used here. But there are other ways of producing electricity without water. So in this case, we can build the test reactor anywhere, you know, in the middle of the desert, around the electricity world. Unless you want to use it for water desalination, in this case, you need to have to get the water in, desalinate it, and send it back to the cities. But basically, we don't need water to cool that reactor or for that reactor to operate. Because we make it fast react which means that it actually takes the neutrons as they come from the fish, which means that we can fission uranium, use uranium-238, and we can use plutonium, we can use thorium, we can use anything that can fission with fast reactors, including the waste of the current reactors can be used in here. The plutonium that is stored in the nuclear bombs that they are dismantling nowadays in Russia and the United States, that plutonium can be used here. So this not only going to produce power, but it will also uh, clean up the current, the waste of the current reactors. The final thing is that because we don't need a moderator, we don't need pressurized tanks, the reactor design is very simple. It will cost much less than current reactors. And the final thing I'm going to show you is the capital cost of a 500 megawatt reactor electric is 0.6 cents per kilowatt hour. If we increase it to 1500 megawatt, then the price drops down by a factor of two for the capital cost. Capital cost building, building the reactor. The operating cost is 65 cents per kilowatt hour for the 545 cents for the uh, for the 1500 megawatt, the total is 1.25 cents per kilowatt hour for the 500, and less than a dollar 80 cents for the uh, <coughs> 1500. If you take the ratio of the cost of the dual fluid reactor to the pressurized water reactor at 500 megawatts, it's a third. 